Hey everyone, this is the uh, Interledger Community Group call, 13th of November. This is the bi-weekly call. Um, call recordings are available on um, the Interledger website and um, this call will be recorded. So if you, uh, yeah, if you dialed in and um, you're not aware, this is gonna be recorded and the recording will be put up. Sorry, I was just switching rooms so you didn't have to hear all the background noise. Um, so two agenda topics that I proposed for today were to cover the uh, OPAY framework or OPAY protocol and um, packet exchange protocol. Uh, any other topics anyone wants to cover today or discuss? Um, I know we had a discussion last week about some alternative ideas about proposing RFCs. I'm not sure if there's any follow up on that. Okay, um, in that case, I think I'll kick off with um, the packet exchange stuff because I think that's the easiest. Um, I know this is a topic that Kincaid is interested in and glad to see David's joined as well. So I know David um, also has had interest in this and, and maths as well. Um, so some background here, um, quite a while back, probably over a year ago, uh, we did some experiments in the Coil Cape Town office with gRPC as a way of exchanging packets bilaterally. So um, for anyone new, this is really uh, coming up with a, a good protocol for exchanging packets between peers. So it's a direct peer-to-peer uh, -peer protocol um, for how two peers can send packets to one another. So the basic requirements is it's bilateral um so you need to be able to send from both sides um ideally you don't want sort of header line blocking you want to be able to send multiple packets in parallel um and uh intelligent packets are request response so the packet itself doesn't natively have anything that allows you to match a request and a response so whatever protocol you use either needs to support the request response pattern natively or you need to have a way of you know grouping uh, requests and responses together so today um, the two protocols that are widely used are btp um, bilateral transfer protocol which is um, a bit dated at this point it has a bunch of features that no one really uses um, it's probably over complicated I think for the use case but in its favor it's widely used and pretty mature um, and BTP is based on WebSockets, so it uses um, binary WebSocket messages to exchange packets and it defines a framing protocol for ILP packets where the um, WebSocket messages are matched in request reply pairs uh, and then it has a bunch of message types, including one called a transfer, uh, which was designed to assist in peer-to-peer sort of -peer settlement. So um, the other, and the other, sorry, the other protocol that's widely used is HTTP. Um, so ILP of HTTP, just using HTTP request responses. And that came, um, I think, mostly out of uh, a desire to come up with a protocol that scaled easily so that it was possible to um, uh, it, so that it was possible to you know run lots of nodes in sort of um, very distributed uh, deployments um, and leverage things that um, existing like technologies or existing things like um, load balances that are already optimized for HTTP. So those are two sort of main protocols. The HTTP implementation can get complicated because um, the existing implementations sort of have a mix of HTTP one and two. Um, there's uh, weird stuff that happens behind certain ingresses like Nginx where they don't actually support uh, internal um, uplinks in HTTP two and stuff like that. Um, uh, so, so none of the bilateral protocols are perfect, the ones that we have, but, you know, as I said, in their favor, they work and they're already in use. Um, so why bother coming up with a new one? Um, well, as I said, it's about a year ago, we started experimenting with other options. 
looked at grpc i did a bit of experimentation with a thing called r socket which was um which is a protocol devised providing uh, the sort of same semantics as reactive um, streams, but over a network boundary or a process boundary. Um, there's also WAMP, which is a, a kind of uh, an application protocol built on top of um, WebSockets. Um, and, you know, then there's sort of the newer versions of HTTP, so HTTP 2 and 3 and so on. So um, a lot of experimenting, some work on a sort of custom protocol, um, Basically, the the like main motivation is how do we find something that's really simple that strips out all of the stuff we don't want from BTP or don't need from BTP, makes writing new implementations easy, um, but also is really you know like it's designed for performance. Like one of the things that we know is going to happen is we're going to have high volumes of packets, especially over peer-to-peer -peer links, um, where sort of the two peers are you know um, maybe made quite main nodes in the network and are are going to be exchanging packets back and forward. Um, I was pushing quite hard for RSocket at one point. I thought it was quite elegant, sort of way of solving the problem we have. And then the more I thought about it, and based on some input from others uh, like Kincaid, I, I realized like the best thing to do is probably just to define something custom and just a really simple way of you know matching. Uh, interledger packets into request response pairs and that's kind of all you need then define the semantics around you know things like item potency um you know request life cycles and so on uh so that's what this attempts to do um my kind of the vision here or the the long-term goal is we have a single place that defines the different ways that you can exchange packets between peers um they have as many common common elements as possible. And then we just describe the variations for different underlying transports. So in my mind, I'm imagining that being uh, HTTP um, because I think it's so ubiquitous and widely supported and, you know, people are, are gonna continue using it um, for a long time. And it has a request response sort of semantic to it, pattern to it already, which is really useful. Uh, the other is WebSockets because I think we want to be able to support the exchange of um, RLP packets between sort of browser-based clients, um, and and you know WebSockets also have a a binary framing protocol which is great. So all that's left to do is sort of request response matching, uh, and then the third, which I started exploring more recently and which I think has a huge amount of potential, as potentially are like favored um, sort of high volume bilateral protocol is quick. So quick is sort of in the latter stages of standardization and IETF. It's the transport that will underpin HTTP3 um, and stream, uh, which Evan designed um, as our interledger transport protocol is heavily based on quick. It's, it's got a lot of great features um, that deal with some of the historic kind of performance issues with TCP. Um, so that's, yeah, that's kind of the thinking. I've, I've um, unashamedly copied certain things out of some of the specs or some of the other stuff that helped explain things like the assumptions and so on. Um, but I think in general, what the packet exchange protocol uh, sort of proposal does is just talk through um, this stuff, the framing, uh, versioning and, and so on. Um, so that's the background. Any questions on that? And then I can kind of give a high level overview of exactly how it works. Okay. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll go into very quickly how it works and some of the design decisions. Um, Basically, you know, we're talking about exchanging ILP packets. So you've got, you know, prepare packets going going out and either reject or fulfill coming back. So one of the great things about that is we don't need to define message types. We already have them, right? So the first byte of every ILP packet already tells you, is it a request? In other words, is it a prepare or is it a reply? So is it a, you know, fulfill or reject? So we didn't need in our, you know, um, transport protocol frame to, to do that. So I've reused that. Um, the next thing was sort of request lifecycle. So how do we decide, you know, 
whether requests are item potent, how long to keep them, and so on. Um, so, as I said, the one thing we don't have in uh, the ILP packet is a sort of unique identifier for each packet that we can use to map request response pairs. So, if we're going to use WebSockets as the transport, my proposal is to prefix the packet just with a fixed length correlation ID. Um, so, correlation ID as a name is something that um, David, you might recognize from JMS, um, but it's from you know various messaging standards. They talk about a correlation ID. So it's it's it, it, the the difference there between just being a request ID is it's not actually identifying the request. Its explicit purpose is to correlate um, messages. So um, if you wanted to, you could have a distinct request ID and a correlation ID, which I think is what they do in JMS as well. Um, so the the idea is you have you know 32 bit um uh unsigned integer that's your correlation id you follow that with the packet uh and then something i added in this latest iteration which i hadn't had previously and this is somewhat inspired by what i've seen in both grpc and rsoc um, so that's transport layer metadata which many people like especially in a system that's especially when you're crossing admin boundaries. So like one peer speaking to another peer um, may not use, but if you, for example, have a distributed system where you've got a bunch of connectors in your own internal infrastructure speaking to each other, you may want to use that for things like exchanging trace context. So um, that's certainly what they do in RSocket and GRPC and it's, it's, or, or for your own custom auth protocol or whatever the case may be. So it's just a sort of open, um, uh like place in the frame you can put anything you want and it's um it would be have to be defined on a peer-to-peer -peer basis and because it's a variable length octet string as as defined by oer um it only chews up a single byte if you don't use it so if you don't use it it's just a zero um which is which is great you know it's it's not it's not like using a lot of space in the message at all um, so those are the those are the pieces that I've put in there. As I said, like the correlation ID, if you're on WebSockets, the correlation ID allows you to do your request reply matching. If you use Quick, um, you can leverage the mechanism that they use for um, HTTP3, which is you create a stream, you send a request down it, and you mark that as the you mark the stream as as basically closed for sending. And then the response, the reply back from the other side is uh, sent and the stream is closed immediately afterwards. So you use a single stream for a single request response pair. And the reason for that is like streams are very lightweight. Streams are literally just a number in, in the frame um, in the same way as we do in stream. So uh, instead of needing to actually explicitly match request response pairs, you, you can just use a stream and, and then um, leverage all of the existing stuff that Quick offers you in that, in that regard. So uh, I probably need to tighten up some of the wording in the doc around exactly how that works. And I might take some inspiration from the HTTP3 spec when that's finished, um, but that's the idea there. Uh, and then I think we had a lot of debate in the past about item potency and like what happens if I send a request and never get a reply. Um, where we landed on that, at least sort of my understanding of consensus around that is in terms of implementation and expectations around the lifetime of interledger requests, uh, we don't want to try and support um, item potency. Basically, if I send a request with a single correlation, with a correlation ID, and then followed by another one with the same correlation ID, um, if the receiver gets that message and isn't actively waiting for a response from, um, isn't actively you know waiting for a response with that correlation ID, then it just accepts it as a new message. So like correlation IDs only live for the lifetime of a request response pair. Uh, you'd be pretty stupid. So I say in the message, you should maximize the time between reuse of them. So the idea would be, you know, start on one and, and increment that as you go and then roll back over when you get to max 32 bit int. But um, the idea here is simplifying implementations, that implementations don't have to keep a whole list of all of the messages they've received in the past and match against it every time they get an incoming uh, request. So 
I think you'd be able to write quite optimized um, receivers here where the packet comes in off the WebSocket uh, connection. You check if you've got an in-flight packet with that correlation ID, and if you don't, you store the um, you store the correlation ID. You you like basically store the request so that you can match it against the re response that's coming back. Um, I haven't. I, I like. I've written some implementations against this concept in a previous iteration when I call this ILP transport. I haven't tried again in um, uh, with this one. So I'll update my code to reflect these ideas um, at some point in the next couple of weeks. But I'm pretty sure that this kind of plays out reasonably well um, on the assumption that ILP packets don't live for, for very long. Um, you know, the in-flight time is going to be in the order of, you know, max like 30 seconds, I think, or maybe a minute. And so the idea is we you sort of define the life cycle of a, of a request as being either in-flight or completed. And um, in-flight means, you know, the sender has sent it and hasn't got back a response yet. Um, I'm keen to explore a few edge cases with people and try and see if we can poke any holes in this. Um, Oh, that's the kind of thing David and Kincaid, you guys have been very good at in previous protocol discussions that we've like found the, the funny edge cases we need to deal with. So I'm um, keen to do that and sort of close any holes that may exist uh, there as well. Um, with Quick, it's a little bit easier because Quick um, does actually act messages on a stream. So you know, as a you know, if you're interacting with a, a properly implemented Quick library, if you send a RP packet on a stream, you know that it's been delivered. Um, and so you can be confident that um, you're, you know, you're either going to get the reply or you're going to time out and, and that's fine. The only like outstanding question I have there is if as a sender, you send a request. Um, so I send a packet to a peer and it times out on my side. Um, like what, how do I, you know, how is that? error sort of surfaced up from the um from the call it the pxp layer up to the application like what does that look like and chatting to matt about it i think we would say that should be just a um some sort of exception it's not actually a reject packet response it's a sort of platform like an, an exception thrown by the library and i think implementations can define the like exception types um that's the only one i think i can think of at the moment um, the other would be the others would be sort of um, transport specific, like couldn't send and stuff like that. Um, I'm going to stop there, and then I can quickly cover sort of sessions and authentication and so on. But does that all kind of make sense? Anyone have comments, questions, criticisms um, of that so far? Adrian, this is Dave. Can you hear me? Adrian, can you hear me? Yes, yes, sorry. I'm muted oh, myself okay. as I was saying, yes. <laughs> Go awesome. ahead. Uh, I'm wondering, um, so I love the protocol, by the way, nice work. Um, I, I, I'm just trying to think a little bit more about the quick, um, like transport. So in WebSocket, you can control sort of like how long you hold on to the correlation ID. Uh, maybe you said this, I, my, I've had spotty connectivity, so I've kind of been in and out of the call in the last few minutes, but can you control how long the quick transport like remembers session IDs that it has already seen? Um, it depends what you mean by control. So quick already has a sort of definition of stream life cycles. So the idea would be um, you create a stream, you send a request on it, you mark, you, you tell your sending library that that's the end of the stream, that you're not going to send anything more on that stream. Um, on the other end, the receiver receives the request. And as soon as they send back a response on that stream, they close the stream. So they mark the stream as that that's finished as well. Um, and, and like managing the sort of stream IDs and so on specifically, is something you shouldn't really have to worry about. Uh, my guess, although the quick APIs aren't well-defined, like there isn't a um, sort of an equivalent of a like a socket API for, for, for quick yet. Um, 
my guess is it'll be something along the lines of give me a stream. Um, you send a request, you get the response and you'll immediately also get a notification that the stream's closed. So you won't actually care what the stream ID is as the application. So I guess I'm thinking of the exception case where, you know, a stream gets opened, let's say it's idea one, and then, you know, just time out or like nothing happens. It's like an error condition. And so this, the stream initiator kind of, maybe you can imagine it, it blows up. And so like whatever started the quick stream sort of starts again, maybe with the same packet perhaps. Is it possible to like accidentally reuse the same stream identifier in, in quick? So like, Kind of an edge case, I think, but the case yeah, would be like. Yeah, so I don't think there is if you repeated. if you if you follow. So what the what we would specify in our protocol about how you use Quick, um, and and uh, you know I don't know what we want to call this. Like uh, my proposal is so packet exchange is just sort of pick a name that allowed us to all know we're talking about the same thing. But my proposal would be that we have like a an RFC that says like um, you know peer to peer packet exchange. And we have ILP over HTTP, ILP over quick, ILP over WebSockets. And those are kind of, we just define these are the way you send ILP packets over those different things. So for ILP over quick, um, I think we would be very specific in the same way as they are in the HTTP3 spec about saying you, you open a stream, you send a request, you close the stream for sending, uh, you receive the response, and um, that's it. And then on the receiving side, when you send a response, you must close the stream. And if you comply with that, there's no way of reusing the stream. Like stream lifecycle, you don't have that level of granular control as the caller into Quick, um, is my understanding. Okay, I probably need to look at the Quick spec then. Like you can yeah. imagine. So, so I think you can't. Like you client. can imagine. Sure. I, I think we could probably just, you know, we can do, this is exactly how HTTP3 works, by the way. So this is, HTTP3 does exactly the same thing and has exactly, I, I've literally copied and pasted some of their wording um, out mm. of the R, current RFC, which is to say, you know, you create the stream, you do the thing, you, do, you know, all of that stuff is like word for word how it's defined in HTTP3. And I think the understanding is if you're using somebody's quick library, um, they're not going to give you the opportunity to say, create a stream with this ID. You just say, give me a new stream. And then, um, and then you, you start sending on it and there are specific commands you can, or like APIs that a stream exposes, um, like, you know, send and, um, and close and so on. So you would, um, and when you send, data down a stream you can mark you can specify that the the, the ace packet of data on that stream is the last packet it's it's like the fin it's the end and so the receiver when they get that know that the stream is now closed um that's at least my understanding of it yeah no the, i think this i think if you're in a stream it, it all makes sense the the case would be like imagine you have a library that implements quick and you turn it yep. on the first time. If it's not using a UUID, which I, it doesn't seem to be, it seems to be a, a no. I think they just use for the stream ID. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So like the first time that library loads up, it's probably going to be like stream ID one, right? So you yep. can imagine if that craps out and you have to start over. You're, you're, you may be in a scenario where you you start that library again and you get stream ID one because it's, it's yeah. But that will be over. so right. So the way that works is that would then be. Um, under a new connection ID. So stream work, quick works the uh, same way okay. stream in that there are connections and then within each connection there's streams. Um, and quick's actually pretty clever with the connection ID stuff in that it's designed so that it can easily move between um, hosts. So, uh, so basically if you, you know, if you're, for example, on your Wi-Fi and you've got a quick connection with somebody remote and you move on to like a different, local internet, um, it should pretty seamlessly move your connection from the one to the other. So the underlying IP address can change, uh, which is pretty cool. 
Okay, yeah, that's not, that's the part I was missing. Then is the, yeah, the new yeah. connection. Yeah, yeah. Related... So there's, a, there's a connection, and then there's streams within the connection. Yes. Okay. So related to that, um, quick seems to be bidirectional in the same way that web sockets are. Meaning, once a connection is created, the server can initiate a stream as well. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. So, so like. Um, We've talked about like stateless and stateful links and bro broadly speaking, like HTTP is stateless in my mind in the sense that, you know, you can have a cluster of receivers of packets and they don't need to, um, they don't really need to be aware of each other. Anyone, any of those mm -hmm. HTTP servers can receive an incoming like prepare request. With WebSockets that was much harder to scale as we all found and, and that was, that's like one of the, maybe complaints of BTP. I'm curious where quick fits in. So like, yeah, I don't know. Is, is I, it, I think that's gonna, I, I, I think based on the, the, I, the, this connection ID concept and the portability of it, I think um, that that was, that's partly there to solve that problem so that, you know, you can imagine having a, you know, a whole, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if that's specific, if that's actually possible, but the other thing you could do, um, you know, is if you're, uh, if you're connecting like quick, quick connections are much cheaper than TCP ones. They, you can do a zero RTT, um, connection if you have connected to the host before. So quick, um, has TLS built in. It's not, um, it's not like TCP that you then wrap that with TLS. So it actually has a secure end-to-end -end encrypted secured connection like from the beginning, but you can start sending in the first packet as well if you're sending to a known host. So my guess is you would probably be spawning a bunch of connections each time you're speaking to a different machine at the other, on the other side. Um, but yeah, I don't know enough about it to, be, um, to be, give a definitive answer on that. Okay, yeah, I guess that'd be, the, de the deployment model, like I'm sure you could do, you could do a bi-directional like sort of quick model, like two, two quick connections, like you're only ever set preparing on one. Or maybe there's something you need to quick that. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I guess we'll, we'll figure that stuff out as we start to, as the implementations mature. I think it's like, it's early days. This is just, I was trying to get a kind of, an idea from, from having learned a bit about HTTP three and how it works. I was kind of inspired to put something in there that says like, this is, this is probably the way we want to go in the end. Um, yeah. like I think it'll be super efficient for, for high volume um, bilateral connections. Um, but, but let's see where that goes. And, and quick is getting pushed aggressively by a lot of people. Like there's implementations already out in production from Google, from Apple. Um, I know Mozilla, are talking about having one out behind a flag pretty soon in Firefox. Cloudflare have done one, Fastly have done one. Um, so the, it, it's not gonna take long um, before it becomes pretty prevalent. I guess the thing that might take a while is for it to get implemented in kind of kernel space, like in the, so it's all user space stuff at the moment because it just builds on top of UDP, um, but that may change as well. We'll have to have to see. Want to put a plug in to call this the Pixie protocol? <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm I, I'm, I think... I'm really keen to just call this ILP over quick ILP over websockets <laughs> and ILP over HTTP. But that, yeah, that would be the I... that would be the formal name. <laughs> and, and the, the the fun name would be, I think PXE gets you there <laughs> as an acronym, and then you're, okay. you're good. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll see what I can do with that. Uh, um, the other thing, so the other thing I wanted to mention and, and Kincaid has brought it up in the comments was the authentication. So, um, I like Kincaid hate the, uh, in transport authentication thing, but at some point in the web's history, they decided to roll out web sockets and screw us, uh, on authentication. 
Um, and it's basically impossible to send an auth header in a WebSocket handshake from a browser. Uh, it's just not exposed. So the only way you can auth a WebSocket connection through the handshake is if you use like cookies or something like that, which, which is kind of sucky. Um, but what I thought I would do is let's just say, uh, you know, in terms of how we define things, let's be a little bit more abstract and say an implementation must consider a connection either authenticated or not. And when you, you know, when you basically establish the underlying transport, you can say this is already authenticated or you can say it's not. And then if it's not authenticated, then the first thing you expect is an ILP packet with the address peer.org that contains authentication information. Um, that's less than ideal because you have to kind of, you know, pass that up to the application in some sort of special way. I think you wouldn't pass it up as just a prepare packet. Um, but it's not the end of the world. Like you can imagine your library basically saying having an event called on authentication or something um, and having a property that tells you whether it's auth or not or who the auth principal is or whatever the case may be. Um, and I think the easiest thing to do is just say, well, the body of that RLP packet contains the auth data and however you want to do that. So it could be a bearer token, it could be some JDT, whatever. Um, but that's up to the peers to decide between themselves. I think we give enough of a framework here Like you can say to your peer, let's use peer.org packets and JWTs or whatever the case may be. Um, and so that's the, that's the idea there. It's, it's like, I'm, I'm not a fan of hundreds of options, um, but I'm also like, I would like to be able to support the concept of a, an authenticated uh, transport, uh, especially because that will come with things like client certs and quick. Um, and and not you know force everyone to send that auth packet up front like we do with BTP. So that's that's sort of the, the compromise. Um, I think that's kind of everything that I wanted to cover there. I mean, it's worth like read through the doc if you have um, if you haven't already. Um, uh, let me know. Uh, like we can you know we can discuss it either on the forum or on Slack. But my plan would be to get feedback from people on this, these ideas. If everyone's generally happy with it, I'll, I'll write a new RFC that, where the goal will be to deprecate ILP of HTTP and replace it with a, an RFC that's called like ILP peer protocols or something. And it basically says like, when you want to send ILP packets, they're always OER encoded. So that's the kind of standard that cuts across all um, transports. Uh, we always have like a way of sending metadata, which I think needs to be defined for HTTP as well. Um, so I want to figure out like whether that's something to just do in the body as binary in the same way. And then if we using, you know, HTTP or quick, then you use request responses. If you're using WebSockets, you use a correlation ID, et cetera, et cetera. And so sort of kind, kind of talk through the there's a bunch of stuff I think that semantics that we can share across all of the transports um, and then just have some transport specific stuff in there. And I think that gets away from um, one of the main things I think the like benefits of that is we're not talking about like another protocol. So one of the things that I've found in explaining ILP to people is you say, oh, okay, well, we got to, you know, we send packets back and forth and they're like, how, okay. And you go, okay, well, you see, we've got this other protocol, it's called BTP, and you've got to like now go and learn about BTP. What we can instead say is if you want to peer with someone, you pick what transport you want to use to send packets, and then we've got well-defined rules about how you send packets between one another using either HTTP, Quick, or WebSockets. Um, and there's pros and cons to all of them, which we can, we can speak to in the document as well. Obviously, the big disadvantage of HTTP is you have to host like a server and a client. It's less of a sort of connection-oriented thing. But the advantage is like the scalability, as David pointed out. So, um, yeah, interested to get to that point, but I'll, I'm, I wanted to use this as a sort of discussion doc to get us there. Adrian, um, apologies if you said this already, but um, is, there, is there any reason to having both WebSocket and Quick? Like, is, is WebSocket giving us something that, Quick is unable to. Do, I so. think we're not going to see Quick in browsers exposed at the API level for some time. Um, 
is my guess, but I don't know. Let's like, uh, it, it depends how long it takes us to get this out. Like my thinking, Ben, Ben raised the point around implementations and the fact that everyone's already using B2P. My thinking is if we can document this, implement a JavaScript uh, version of it, and then just update the BTP plugin, the one that everyone bases all existing plugins and sort of bilateral stuff on with um, something that like uses this, but falls back to BTP, we can slowly move everyone off of BTP or, or maybe not slowly quickly. In which case I think we might be a bit too early to be saying, well, quick is it like quick's the, the way everyone should yeah. go. I, I don't know, okay. like it'll be a timing thing, I guess. Um, David, I, just, like, I, I kind of like WebSockets to be honest because they they're great for um, if you want to open connections from the browser, if you want your host identities to be like an origin-based thing, stuff like that. Sorry, Matt, I think you were about to say something. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, David, I suspect Quick's gonna give the same issues that currently HTTP two gives you, in that it like it doesn't like it it's it's a bidirectional channel, but it's not really geared for request response because of like the server push in HP2 is not great semantics for what we're trying to do with bidirectional request response. Um, it just doesn't work as nice as you think it should work. Uh, so, and I suspect quick's going to be the same, like the browser. No, I, I, I don't, I disagree. I think HTTP3 would be. Try but to But if we use real quick, I think we'll be fine. That's that's the challenge. I don't know that browsers will expose quick like a raw quick. There's a there's a proposal at the moment called Web Transport, where some guys, specifically from the gaming industry, are really interested in getting raw quick channels available from within the browser. Um, it, it's a lot of people really excited about it, making it happen, but. Um, they're getting quite a lot of pushback, for example, from privacy and security people, because the way the whole, the web security model works is everything's origin bound. So they would need some sort of special way of establishing quick connections with something like a WebSocket handshake. So that's, that's like quite a, that's quite a difficult problem to solve from the browser is if I can just open random like TCP connections from inside a user's, like JavaScript inside a user's browser, I can basically send anything anywhere um, without the user knowing about it. And I, I can break out of the, like the origin boundaries that they try and use to sandbox stuff. Okay. So it, it does seem like WebSockets is a, is a good uh, profile to support. Uh, yeah. Especially for I browser. Think, I think we'll have to at least for a while. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so I'll leave that out there. And, you know, feel free to log uh, issues or um, PRs or whatever, and we can iterate on this for a couple of weeks, and then I'll um, start putting Adrian, together I, I a proposed uh, RFC. Oh, just one, okay. just one quick question I had uh, was around the metadata. Uh, yes. Can you explain like what specifically that would be used for? So um, where I've seen it used in other similar protocols, which I think is useful, is specifically if you're, um, if you're communicating between uh, instances in your own deployment. So like if you've got multiple connectors speaking to each other inside your like, you know, scaled out infrastructure, you can do things like um, put tracing context in there so you could like, you, for example, a packet comes in from your ingress and you pass it between three or four connectors. You can stick a trace ID into the metadata and then from your logs, be able to trace that packet, you know, through your whole, um, through your whole system. Uh, because the assumption is the correlation ID will change at each hop. Um, that's one use case. Uh, the other is like, you could use it to carry other maybe internal like metadata, like the user. Um, so you authenticate the user at the edge, but then you want to pass them the identity of the user throughout your system internally. So I, I would expect it to be probably used more like in between internal peers, but it's also, you know, people could decide to use it externally, like to carry metadata. So it's common in, um, where I've seen it is RSocket and gRPC and both of them use it for those two cases.
Mm. Uh, I'll try it. Sorry, your your hands up. Did you want to ask something? Hi, uh, this is Anshul. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I don't have any comment on the previous question. I just had a different question. If that's um... uh, sure, go ahead. Uh, I mean, did that answer your question, Kinget? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's okay. Cool. Seems, yeah, then go ahead, Anshul. Um, okay, so um, I'm going through this uh, peer uh, exchange protocol and I see this expiry request expire based upon the value of the expires at field. Uh, and the request is marked complete if it is expired. But isn't it possible that the reply is still in flight? It is, but from the sender's perspective, um, there's nothing they can do with that reply. So they once it's expired, they need to uh, they need to send a reply to the original caller. So um, basically, if you if you have a if I send a request to you with an expiry and I don't get a response back from you before it expires, I'm going to just discard your response when I get it. Uh, yeah, but okay. So, but the receiver would prepare like send a fulfilled packet if uh, the request hasn't expired yet and it might be the reply still might be in the in flight but the sender has already closed the request so the receiver would add say a second to the earth make sure there's at least say like one second left between their current time and the expiry or some fixed amount to um, account for the latency of returning the packet and maybe uh, uh, skew between their two clocks uh, which i imagine you, you may have some thoughts on um, uh, yeah it's interesting actually that, that does raise that does raise the kind of edge case there that I was talking about, uh, you know, wanting people to surface. I wonder if you need as the sending implementation to be able to differentiate between when the packet expires, which is kind of the, the time limit you're giving the receiver to send you back the reply and when you want to expire it internally, whether that's something you could set just as a property, whether you would want to actually set it on a packet by packet basis. Right. I um, guess there are some ways that you can uh, discover the network latency and based on that, you can set that parameter. Uh, plus, of course, yeah. the time, stamp, time, uh, time skews between the clocks. That's also important, I guess. Yeah. And, and in most cases, anyway, a reject packet is going to come from your, I'm going to say, inverted connector um, because it's got like some weight on that interval. So like it will probably just miss out on it. Um, but either way, you, like even if you got that packet after the fact, your connector would have already rejected the packet. So it's, it's not like the functionality has changed that much to what's currently happening with ILP. Yeah, no, it, it uh, but I, I think there is an opportunity here to maybe improve things slightly. So I need to, I need to, I think, draw this out to fully understand. But if, if I imagine like sending application layer, sends is passing a prepare down to the sending let's call it pxp layer um and it's got an expiry let's say you know 10 seconds from now um it's expecting the pxp layer to basically throw an exception after 10 seconds and say i never got a response um but the pxp layer is going to forward that packet to PXP receiving on the receiver side who passes it up to the application the application is doing its thing. But by that point, um, you know, it's, it still also thinks it's got 10 seconds. So let's say the send there was like negligible. Um, when it gets back its response on the receive side, so the application passes a response back down to PXP on the receive side, and it's now got a fulfillment and it wants to pass it back. In its by its calculations, let's say it thinks it still has you know a half a second to send it back, but the network latency is one second. In the meantime, the uh, sending PXP side has expired the packet and has thrown an exception. So somehow, 
um, the difference between when it expires at the sender and when you expect the receiver to uh, respond needs to be expressed in the protocol. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering if a way to do that is on the sending side, um, if, if you leave that up to the application and you say to the application uh, that it specifies the expiry, but it tells the maybe the PXP um, sending layer doesn't actually expire the packet until, I don't know, 10 seconds after the time that's in the packet. And that's sort of a configurable property of the, of the sender. Adrian, I'm, I'm confused why you need this extra expert. It's the differential. It's the differential between when the packet gets expired at the sender and when the packet is considered um, expired by the receiver. So if I send a packet to you with an expiry mm -hmm. of midnight tonight, you think you have until midnight tonight to send me back the response. But let's say you think the network latency is two seconds. So you know you have to send that packet back to me at least two seconds before midnight. But what happens if the network latency is actually five seconds? As far as you're concerned, you sent the packet in time. You sent a fulfill that you expect me to pass on. But you don't know that when you sent it, it actually took five seconds to get to me. And on my side, I have also expecting it to expire. And so it arrives at three seconds past midnight. So it's too late. I've already expired it. So the, the, the expiry I send you needs to be less than the amount of time I'm actually going to wait to explicitly expire it on my side, if that makes sense. Like we talk about telescoping timeouts, but we normally think about applying those at the application layer, not down in the transport. Um, and so we need some accommodation for that, I think. I don't know. I think that's fine, though. Like, yeah, I agree. You can set your risk profile. I mean, you can set it high enough, way above, like, what a reasonable network latency is. And even if a, you know, a packet gets dropped, you know, one out of every, you know, hundreds of, you know, 100,000 packets gets, you know, whatever it is gets dropped, you know, it's like. Mm. I, I, um, I feel like I, I need to implement, just write a rough implementation to see what the impact would be and sort of uh, emulate like, like uh, simulate this but I, I think I I think I agree that there is a problem there but I don't know <laughs> maybe we don't we don't all agree there's a problem but I, I think I agree that there is one uh, just for clarity for you Anchal, um, mm -hmm. this edge case is present in all of the transport protocols it's not necessarily yeah. in my opinion unique to this proposal and loosely speaking if if this happens, if a connector fulfills to its downstream peer, but the peer has already expired, then that connector will lose money because they would have fulfilled on one side and not gotten paid on the other. But that loss is limited to the connector. It won't it won't percolate like to the other yeah. participants. So you guys are saying, Kincaid and David, you're saying that as the receiver, if I get a packet that says this must be fulfilled by midnight. I should make sure that I have a good idea of the network latency to return it. And I give myself enough time to do that. Otherwise I expire it myself. I guess yeah. this could be on either side, either the sender can keep a record and have that extra window or the receiver can um, take the network latency into account and have that window. Yeah, it's really um, probably incentive is going to fall on the um, the connector returning the fulfillment because uh, if they get it wrong, they're going to lose money likely. Right. So, for what that's worth, like that, it'll probably be that system tracking that and making sure it's setting its uh, or you know not not um, propagating prepares that that it thinks is going to exceed its expiry window. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
We, so so um, happy to pick this up. I, we better run out of time. I wanted to quickly hear from Brandon if he had any comments on the OPE stuff while we have a few minutes. Um, so let's um, let's pick this up on the on Slack and maybe um, if you have any ideas about something we could put in to um, to deal with this, um, yeah, submit a PR and let's add it to the doc. Uh, that's probably a good way to take this forward, and and we can then you know discuss that PR as well. Even if it's just sure. a note about you know how participants should accommodate the, the like should consider the the risk and what they should do to mitigate it. Yeah, sure. Um, so with only a couple of minutes left, Brandon, I know you've looked through the OPE stuff. I made a few changes today to. Um, accommodate what to put in some uh, error cases that we talked about. Uh, for everyone else, Brandon and Ben and I um, and Matt have been talking about basically building out a, a sort of richer description of some of the stuff we've showed you guys over the last month or two for open payments. So basically building on like OAuth and OpenID Connect as a sort of standard way to set up payments for ILP. Um, this doc that I linked from the forum is basically all of the intro stuff. A lot of it you'll recognize from the ILP web discussions, um, but then gets into specifics for at least the web monetization use case. And the plan is to add the other use cases over time. Um, the main sort of idea here is to come up with something a little bit more explicit than SPSP. So rather than calling get on side effects there that create things for tracking and so on. You actually explicitly create what we call a session. Um, and then that session uh, is how you track payments. Um, it's basically just a way of like grouping payments into a session. Uh, and one of the advantages of that is you can give third parties access to the session to check how much has been received and also track a kind of a spent balance. Um, and this is quite useful for third parties, for example, who are hosting web monetized content. Um, and when a user, like one of their content providers gets paid, they want to track that the person's getting paid so that they know to provide access to the content, but they also want to track how much content's being consumed, for example. And so they use the spend API to track that. Um, the basic idea with um, sessions is like when you call the session API and you create a session, it um, the server will kind of create it in memory. So it'll, it'll record that, you know, you want a session with a specific ID and some specific properties, but that session will expire and go away. It won't be persisted if no payments are ever received for it. And then if you ever do a get against that session resource, you'll get a new unique um, destination and shared secret that you can use to send money to the session. Um, so nobody ever gets the same secret. If you get against it multiple times, you should get new one each time. Um, and really the idea is just that, yeah, from the wallet side, there's a way of correlating these things into, or, or at least um, aggregating these things under an identifier and that's the identifier that websites for web monetization can use to correlate like payments they've sent and, and have actually been received. Um, so I'll stop there. Brandon, um, any thoughts from your side? Hey, uh, I, I haven't looked at your latest changes from the past day. Um, oh, okay, no, no problem. Sorry, they were all done today, so <laughs> forgiven. Yeah. Uh, I. I definitely I agree how the the session like they they definitely solve the web monetization use case of how do we verify that payments have happened. Uh, I, I think I'm kind of wondering is sessions plus invoices going to cover every type of push payment like if if we had to come up with sessions for web monetization, are we going to have to come up with something else for some other kind of use case? Um, I, I guess I'm a little unclear still, like how, if, 
if someone wants to pay me, how do I make it clear to them that they need to create an invoice versus they need to create a session? Um, right. So, so I think like with invoices, if someone needs to pay you, I think one thing you could do is create the invoice yourself and then link them to the invoice. So that's certainly how um, Matt and I have just talked about it and thought about it is um, you would, you would give somebody like the link to the invoice and when they viewed visit to that, it would give them a unique stream a set of stream credentials to pay that invoice. And in the same way as like with a session, each time they hit it, it gives you a different one. Um, but the properties of an invoice would be subtly different. So, you know, an invoice, for example, would have a fixed amount that's in, in supposed to be paid. Um, and you wouldn't be able to do things like spend money off of an invoice as it gets paid, it gets paid, stuff like that. Um, so there's this like subtle difference between the two. Um, and I'm happy, like we could, we could um, kind of maybe iterate a bit on this and see like if there's a way to recombine them. But I think like sessions is at least web monetization is kind of a, a unique payments use case. Um, and sessions just seems to make sense at least as it is for now. Um, I'm like, I'm very interested to get feedback from the wallets that we know are, are going to look at this and are looking at implementing it. They may come back with some interesting feedback. Are you, are you good. thinking specifically about Codius um, use cases? Um, I, I guess I'm mainly, I'm definitely coming at it from web monetization use case. Um, and then also like, in my mind, like we, we had Codius where Codius hosts were running money D like they were, they were receiving the money paid to them directly. Um, and when we're transitioning to a world where people like Codius hosts won't have BTP uplinks, they won't be running money D like they need this type of payment verification to to know if they're, they're getting paid for stuff like hosting workloads. Um, okay. so I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm approaching this as how, okay, cool. how do we help people transition away from running money to themselves yeah. to receive payments? Okay. Um, it would be cool. I, I mean, if you want to, um, or if you have the time, maybe, um, log that use case just as an issue and we can um we can discuss it there and, and see what we can add on i mean i'm my goal with this doc is just keep fleshing it out with more and more use cases and keep identifying you know ways we can the the protocol can either address those like as it exists or um or things we need to change and then, you know, couple that with actually doing the implementation in the Rafiki money, like proof of concept wallet, reference wallet, um, so that we can keep testing our sort of assumptions and our designs um, that they make sense. Sure. Yeah, I'll open an issuer somehow get awesome. that documented. Thanks. Okay, cool. Um, so for everyone who's just joined, I have some very disappointing news. Uh, because of daylight savings, you're all an hour late. Um, it, we, we started the call at 4 PM UTC, which I think is no longer the same time as it used to be for you guys. Um, the good news is it's all recorded. Um, and most of it was me just waffling on about packet exchange protocol. Um, some good questions and discussion from Kincaid and, uh, David and, uh, somebody new who has dropped off the call. David, I think it's a colleague of yours. Unsure. Yeah. Unsure. unsure. Yes. Unsure. Um, so uh, feel free to catch up on the recording. I'll post it up right away um, on the forum. Again, sorry for sending out the reminder so late. Uh, hopefully, um, uh, well, uh, I apologize if you would have joined earlier if you had got it. Um, so I'll send that out um, earlier next time. Make sure it gets to everyone uh, based on our normal two week cadence, the plan will be to have another call on the 27th of November. Um, it will be 
at the same time as this week's call. So if you're like have switched over from or to daylight savings, whatever the case may be, it's always UTC, 4 p.m. UTC. Uh, so whatever that means for you. Thanks everyone for joining that was able to join for the last hour. Apologies again for those of you just dialing in. On the plus side, you've got an hour back uh, in your day. Um, and I'll send out the recording like, within the next few minutes. So you could just spend the next hour listening to that. And then uh, let's pick up the discussion on Slack and on the forums. Thanks again, everyone. And we'll chat again in a couple of weeks. Ciao.